I try and challenge product managers in Europe with two different measures. And that's the rate of execution and the rate of learning. And what's really important here is that if we try and define these, it's how fast am I delivering value to people, the rate of execution, and how fast am I de-risking the value I want to create, my rate of learning. At the end of the week, your leader or you yourself can just ask, have I executed faster this week than last week? A relative measure. If you feel each month, say, you are able to improve your rate of learning and you are compounding your ability as a product person. If you feel like you can do the same with execution, you are starting to be better and better and you can start to be limited by people in your team. And that's really interesting because product managers should think in terms of performance for themselves, right? Back to their intolerance. That's an honest conversation to have, and that's a really valuable conversation that most people in Europe don't have. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome James Routledge, who is currently VP product at Converge, where he leads the product team in solving the sustainability challenges around the use of concrete in the construction industry. Previously, James held leadership roles in engineering, venture capital, and before that, James was also a founder. Hi, James. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Axel. Can't complain today. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Before we go into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, of course. So I've been messing around in entrepreneurship and product for about 15 years now, and I can break it into a couple of arcs, which have really helped to shape my career to this point. So for about the first half decade, I was an engineer and I really learned how to solve problems and think technically back before so many different frameworks have made it easier. And now low code always makes that seem redundant, but I caused too much trouble. So I got pushed into product management so I could start making some of the decisions. And as part of that, I got very lucky because I got to be in a business to go from MVP up to a half billion dollar exit. And I got the experience of really skilling products, but I wanted to understand leadership. So I then spent time in venture capital, which was a great way of understanding what products feels like at the boardroom. And I also got to do that in not just the UK, but in the US. It gave me the energy to be a person that wanted to be a product leader and start my own journeys. And so I founded companies and some of those have been acquired. And I'll be honest, some of the ones I'm most proud of were ones that failed. And it taught me a lot. So having been able to do products in large and small companies in the US and in Europe, I feel I'm a very well-rounded product person, even if I do have that slightly evil VC card as well. It's funny that you mentioned this. One of the questions I had was, what are some of the ways you can see product being done differently between Europe and between the US based on some of the VC experience that you had? Yeah, it's a great question. So from my point of view, it's very much a night and day experience. And I think a lot of that stems from the origins. A lot of project management turned into product management in Europe. In the US, they didn't have that. They had entrepreneurship that turned into product management. And so you see a completely different ethic when we come to doing work. I think that if you look at European companies, they're actually very well run from an operations point of view, really good at sprints. We love agile. In the US, you have a slightly different perspective and I'm happy to dig into that, but the summary is that they want to win, right? They drive what they do based on value and they're allergic to the opposites. 
which is quite different from how we feel products over in Europe at the moment, except in a few notable companies. I don't know if this was like intentional, how you shaped your, the journey of your career trajectory. How did you make these things happen? Like how does one go from being a product leader to venture capitalist? In this case, the story is that I was helping out a series A company and the person who was the CEO and I was interim CPO went, James, this venture capitalist has messaged me and said, he needs an introduction to the smartest person I know. And I think that's you. Can I just put you guys together? But I went, yes, I didn't really fully understand, but I knew there was an opportunity. And I ended up in a about 12 or 13 person call with this very notable venture capitalist in Europe. And we had to review deal by deal. And I put my product hat on and told him all the deals were bad. And apparently that was the pass. So I got the job. But I didn't really understand what I was doing until I got there. But I knew what it could teach me. Because obviously we all know what venture capital is. So what are some of the things you learned doing this? You talked about having this perspective of being in the boardroom and seeing maybe the other side of what running a day-to-day product operation might look like. What are some of the things that you've learned based on that experience? From a product point of view, it really teaches you how the things you do have to compound. And that's really important at a board level. Because normally you think in terms of one year, which is normally the jump between raising money, right? And in this case, you can't just think, I'm going to build a product and it's going to work. You need to think, how does Q1 compound into Q2, compound into Q3, compound into Q4, but also, how could I be wrong? And I think this is a big thing. And it plugs in a little bit to the US-EU split. In the US, product managers embrace failure. They love it. They get so excited when they fail. In Europe, there's a bit of a taboo. We try not to say that our roadmap was rubbish. And you really see that in boardrooms because that's where you feel the pain. That's where you know that if I'd just known a bit sooner that I was making the wrong strategic product move, I could have got back my most scarce resource, which is time. And it's interesting you mentioned this kind of different appetite for failure or different ways of actually going through failure. What do you think people in the US embrace it? Like is, I'm guessing it's like failure equals learning. Like they're learned, they're taking something out of this. What are some of the differences you've seen between dealing with failure in these two different geographies? Yeah. So I, I think the big difference between the two is that in Europe, if you're a product manager and you're thinking that you could be failing, you feel embarrassed. And you don't know whether to talk to your boss, the head of product, the CPO about it. You're not really sure what to do. In the US, you get really excited because you can tell your boss that we were doing it wrong, right? And we weren't winning. And we can have that good conversation. And the idea is that there's a condition. If you repeatedly fail, you're making a mistake. That's a no-no. That's not acceptable. But if we found that one thing that was going to stop us winning, and we can stop that together, that's a high five moment. And you can see why the two different parties have a different mindset around what failure means. That makes a lot of sense. You also talk about the origins and how entrepreneurship in the US evolved to become product versus project management, turning into product management in Europe, or at least people are trying to make that transposition. We talked about this vulnerability around failure. What are some of the other components that make the US a different playground? So I think another core attribute of that is bias for action. 
And what I mean by bias for action is people need to feel like things are moving and they're not tolerant of the opposite in the US. I feel like in the European product sphere, you want everyone to come along for the journey and there's a lot more consensus. In the US, there's a go fast and break things. They came up with the language, right? They are much better at asking forgiveness and permission. Admittedly, that is a little more difficult to do. But you can see that product people in the US are going to shoot from the hip and are okay to fail. And that includes internally. So there are places where that's acceptable. It's not easy. No one's saying that these things are easy. I'm just generalizing here and I'm just going to say it's cultural differences, basically, and probably based on like our education models and how we've been brought up and stuff like that. But this thing around speed, like you talk about people won't tolerate that nothing is happening. How have you seen some of these companies in the US maintain that? Because I'm also thinking about the energy that's involved to keep everyone in the organization at that level of energy and like constantly just churning out the thinking, the actual building. How does that actually work? And obviously, maybe in Europe, we're not doing it in the same way or we don't have the same appetite for the investment of that level of energy. What are some of the blockers that we're basically facing in Europe? Yeah, I feel like a lot of that doesn't necessarily stem from the bottom, right? There's a huge thing around the fact that product managers over here need to become less tolerant. I think becoming intolerant is important. But in terms of the enablers that exist in the US or the way that we might want to think about it, if we were listening now, it's actually from the top down, right? Europe does struggle from a lack of really strong people at the VP and CPO level that kind of set these mandates, right? Because if you can set the mandates, you can do two things. One is that you can constantly become the champion of that. And we can do things like get people together and define metrics that help everyone feel like they're moving. But the other thing you can do, as well as the, let's say, the way of executing, you can define the culture. You can choose to hire a bunch of people with intolerance, should we call it. And that's a very different way of thinking about hiring product people over here in Europe. And I also believe that the ecosystem is ready for it. I do think that we have junior product managers out there that would like to operate like this, but if you're the only person in the company that does that, it's not going to work. You need it to come from the top. It needs to be deemed either a status quo or an acceptable behavior that we want to encourage in people. One of the things that I also see when I speak to American folks, and I'm quite lucky that some of them will come on this show, is that they talk about success in very different terms. For example, one thing I can see in Europe, I've been living in Europe for 17 years now. And one thing that I can see here is people are almost ashamed of being successful. There's like this thing because success probably means I'm getting, making more money and money's like this big top, let's big taboo topic. I shouldn't be really talking about this. Americans really embrace this. I spoke to somebody a couple of weeks back and during our intro call, they told me I am the best at what I do like using this kind of language and this kind of statement, I wouldn't hear this from a peer in Europe. It's just not the way Europeans talk. To what extent do you think like this culture, and it's also in the language, funny that you mentioned the language earlier, and language forges how we think, right? So how much of this do you think has to do with personality versus a mindset of just being out there and saying, 
yeah, I'm just the best at this thing, right? There's a really interesting, very deep conversation about culture, as in the culture of two different, very large bodies of land and what separates them. But I do think that there's enough diversity in both places. I'm not saying that every North American is smashing it. We see huge spreads in the quality and quantity of people working in tech across a country that is almost the size of Europe. So I think we have the opportunity on both sides, but I do think that the point on language is really important. So whilst there is a positioning of self that we could talk to, I would rather look at it in a more generalist sense. And I always typify this when I talk, when people talk to me and say, what is the real difference? Should I work in a US company? Should I find a US culture over here? What does that mean? And I normally say to people, if you're a product manager and you work in a European company and you start in that business, your boss is going to say words like, how can I make you feel comfortable? How are you settling in? If you were to do the exact same thing, but it was the US company, your boss is going to sit down and say, how can I make you successful? And it's a completely different perspective in terms of what they think someone wants slash needs. And it goes down to a little bit of culture here because yes, in the US it's much easier to have a very big list of what I think you can do for me to make me successful. But in both places, it's culturally acceptable to have that and to say, hey, boss, head of product, VP product, CPO, I need you to make me successful. I want to win in my career. You know, then that's a bit broader than saying I'm the best, but it is aligning to the fact that we're both in a contract where we both want that outcome, but we should be allowed to talk about it. I guess we're going back to the earlier point around the leadership of the company, right? A lot of these examples and mandates are coming from the top. So how have you seen companies in Europe create the environment where people can actually have these conversations? So just in myself, I can talk to quite a few businesses. I stand up as the figurehead of product in a company. And I think everyone who's underneath a product leader should, do, should expect them to do that. And I'm quite clear. I want all of you to win. I say that you're the most important thing in what I do and the door is always open. We should talk about it. I'll be honest with the product managers I have today, every month we set a personal goal. And what we do is we sit down and I say, look, no one's going to know about this, but I want you to be feeling like every month you are becoming a better product person. It doesn't matter whether you want to be a CPO and I don't care where you're going. But the deal is that I want you to give for me a challenge that you feel you need to overcome. And if you don't know, we can work on it, but I need that to be seven out of 10 hard. And I need it to be seven out of 10 hard for two reasons. Option A in that reasoning is that you smashed this and we validated that you overcame something huge and you do that 12 times a year, you're 12 times the person. And I want that for you. But option B is I want you to reason that if you don't achieve this and it was seven out of 10 hard, I want you to be proud that no matter what happens, you have improved because this was worthy of your time. And maybe month two, they do the same one because they're like, I failed and I'm going to crack at this again. But simple things like this enable our organizations to evolve with its product functions and to become a little bit more like what I'm a little biased on the US way. That resonates. How has it been going so far? You implementing this your challenge-based growth program, if I might call it this way, the company. Yeah, I think it's going well. I think that people care a lot about their personal development. I think the interesting challenge that I feel many product managers have is they actually don't know what their career progression is. So if I say, where are you going to be in two years time? If I challenge you to say, what's going to give you energy if you could be there? 
that takes a bit of shaping. And I think, in fact, that's probably the key challenge maybe I face today in helping with people. And I think that a lot of product leaders in Europe might struggle to define this. Back to our problem. Do you want someone to feel like they're capable and competent and do the things? Or have you actually defined a way where we both agree you're winning? And that's a very different way that you can help very young product managers to embrace this and in converge and trying to do the latter. And we're an impactful business, right? So it's an interesting counterculture, but it's, in, it's a merge because we want to win and have impact. I'm glad you mentioned junior product managers in general. We talked a little bit about how founders might have to adjust to create a culture that is more accepting of success and more accepting of failure. What does a US version of that product team look like from a product manager's point of view? Like, how is it different? That's the interesting thing. The way they work is probably different, but it's the same bundle of people doing the same bundle of stuff, right? Squads are pretty uniform. We have the right bunch of people. I would say that there might be a difference in terms of how they work together. So in my experience, back to the project manager problem, there's a lot of agile documentation towards engineers and a lot of spoon feeding, if I'm honest, where product managers do that. If you were in a West Coast company today and you were a junior to product manager level person and you tried to write the requirements for the engineers, they would say that you don't know what you're doing. We do that. We can define how to solve this problem. What we expect you to do is to set the vision, quantify the value we create, and give us the right direction so that we can collaborate solving the problems. So there is a, there's a nuance in how they operate together. And that's a lot of engineering culture, but we can still make it work in Europe, right? There's a collaboration point. Maybe what might be helpful in how do I mitigate that? In European companies, when I look at this and when I sit down with engineering, design, product teams and have that remit, I say, look, you need to understand that each one of us has admin to do. And if one person has all the admin, that doesn't work. So we should define what we think this is and we should then scale that back to what's the least amount of admin we need to do together to build a wonderful product. And that sort of mitigates the behaviors that you see in so many companies in Europe. And I think that from my point of view, I try and challenge product managers in Europe with two different measures. And there's a way I look at this, which is not binary. And that's the rate of execution and the rate of learning. And what's really important here is that if we try and define these, you're a product manager, you're thinking about this, it's how fast am I delivering value to people, a rate of execution, and how fast am I de-risking the value I want to create, my rate of learning. Now, just to add a bit to this, because I think that this is always misunderstood. Some people know about build, measure, learn. Other people know about product discovery, product delivery lives, dual track agile. We could go into all of this, but I don't think that's the same. Anything that sounds like a process that's agile is wrong. And this is a, this is again a big jump. I think if you're, if you're a PM in Europe right now, the way you can think about this should be far more agnostic and it's easy. At the end of the week, either your leader in product or you yourself can just ask a question. Did I increase my rate of execution? Have I executed faster this week than last week? A relative measure. And it's really interesting because it comes from a, it's actually how positive psychology works. So there's no, uh, there's no definition of happiness. You're not happy or unhappy. That doesn't work. You're either happier or less happy than you were yesterday. And you should apply the same principles. 
if you feel each month, say, you are able to improve your rate of learning, then you are compounding your ability as a product person. If you feel like you can do the same with execution, you are starting to be better and better and you can start to be limited by people in your team. And that's really interesting because product managers should think in terms of performance for themselves, right? Back to their intolerance. So the way that I would also look at this is the opposite. I know failure is not the one we always want to dig into, but actually saying for the last three straight weeks, I feel like the rate of execution of myself limited by a factor is going down. That's valuable. That's an honest conversation to have. And that's a really valuable conversation that most people in Europe don't have. A very interesting perspective around how can one measure that from oneself and talking about product managers specifically in, in this case. You also talked about compounding value. What does that mean? What does that look like when you're a product manager? Compounding of value for me, obviously you can look at it selfishly for yourself and you can look at your trajectory. When we talked about this two-year plan, and your personal goals. You can try and compound it. That's a great way to look at it. But as we've already discussed that, I think an important piece is the other part, which is how do we win, right? Back to the boardroom, back to the PM thinking, how is my product strategy, how are the things I've put on a roadmap or I'm accountable to on a roadmap if I'm a bit more junior, how is that compounding? It shouldn't just be printing feature after feature. You should A, be measuring with metrics and honest with you, when it comes to people doing this for the first time, I actually say, can you do me a roadmap? And then I get them to do the roadmap and then delete it. And I say, great, can you now do a roadmap with just numbers? And then once they've done the numbers, I go, okay, let's put your roadmap back on. Does it line up? And it's a really nice way of someone actually validating their impacts. Product leaders can probably just work with numbers and they can think about that constantly and challenge themselves. But a PM today could do this. And again, just saying, if you don't know, what are my numbers is one of those big questions that so many European PMs might not have even asked yet. So there's a huge part there where you can compound value and or the opposite again, you can prove that you're not compounding value. And that's just as important. That is a great conversation. In the US, I would high five you and say, this is what we should be spending time talking about. Yeah, that's interesting. This admin perspective, I've never looked at it this way, but I certainly saw and this is based on my experience in London, working in various companies for over five years, seeing what product can actually look like when it's done beautifully and working with like senior engineers who do not need to be spoon fed, who are grown ups and know how to code and are some of the most creative people in the company. Moving back to France and looking at continental Europe, I can also see how we're behind, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of the product manager is the mini CEO thing still happening. People see product management as this like status role in the company. It creates like this divide between product managers and the rest of the teams, designers, engineers, etc. We see so many companies where engineers are treated like an execution role. Like I'm, I'm going to give you a bunch of tickets to address and you're just going to execute. And it, that's so much removed from what it could actually be in an, what Martin Kagan calls an empowered team. I'm curious to have your point of view on how do we bring this way of working closer to what you've witnessed in the US? Yeah, and it's, it's a topic very close to my heart. I really care 
about the greatness of Europe. That's not just London. That's not just the UK, the greatness of Europe. And so I think there's a number of answers, but actually one of the things I do today is I run Product Land. And it's just an example of how I'm trying to solve or help to solve this problem. And Product Land is a, is a community of the top people, the VPs and CPOs to come together to challenge themselves, but also it creates a space for vulnerability. And uh, I think that's a really necessary thing to help us catch up. We don't actually have a space where leaders in product can say, I don't know what I'm doing. Now, I'm not saying people run around doing that in product land, but we need a space where we can be ourselves. That's what vulnerability is. It's strength through just saying, I'm me, do you accept me? And in this case, it's I'm me, the CPO. I will put something in the show notes about product land if people want to reach out. And we can also tell them a little bit about the great network of people you're building. This goes back to this conversation around goal setting, business outcomes, product outcomes, which I think is a topic that is still top of mind for so many leaders in Europe, but I still yet to find a solution for their product teams to be actually upskilled on this stuff. A lot of organizations I speak to don't actually have a goal setting framework. Most of them will go by default to, for example, OKRs without a clear view of why they are doing it and how it's going to pay off, if it's going to pay off in the first place. And I had this conversation recently with Ravi Mehta around goal setting and using the NCT framework, narrative commitments and tasks. And he talks about how in most organizations, even the ones that have been using OKRs for a while, it's become this thing that doesn't resonate with most people in the company. It's, it's become this like ghost, like there is this thing called OKR and it changes maybe every quarter or every other quarter. I know that I have to do some stuff to like make this number move, but people don't leave and breathe this thing, this goal setting framework. What are some of the ways you've seen people actually developing a goal setting framework and actually make like make the framework like pervasive across the company and making sure people are living and breathing it. Yep. For a small sojourn, venture capital funds ask me to come in and help them with product on this topic. So I have a reasonable amount of experience in doing it wrong and doing it right. And I'll also caveat and say that in a minute, I'll tell you exactly how Converge is about to do it. And it's not the way that I would like to do it. So I'm going to tell you what I think is right and what we've had to do to still get there eventually. So. The key thing for me is I care a lot about people creating their own accountability, right? You need to have conviction. If not, it's lip service. So the way that I look at this, and I do think OKRs work really well, is that when I ask people about them, I say, leadership, make a strategy. Product leadership, define the objectives. Do not put any numbers in. There are no metrics. I always forget the abbreviation, but they should be big, hairy, audacious goals. and they need to be inspirational, right? If I read out an objective and it sounds like I'm eating cardboard, I've not really done the job. It's supposed to inspire people. But you don't get to choose how people achieve the objective. Give that to the teams. Tell them to define the key results, maximum three. And their key results have to be measurable and you can help them remove bias. The biggest problem I've seen with OKRs is that Hey, we don't go high five on the objectives. So they sound a bit boring. 
but the people come up with key results that contain bias. And it's really important that leaderships help people to understand this. Normally they have three categories. One, and I encourage anyone listening to actually look at their OKRs and see if they conform, right? A, there should be no metrics in the objective, but there are. Let's crap that out, make it fun. And I think fun's the right word, actually. It's aspirational and fun. With the key results, they can only be one of three types. Either it's a zero to one, we launched the product. Fun. It's a metric measured change. We increased conversion by 50%. Or it's an incremental strategic. This is where people set OKRs that they can't achieve within the, uh, the length of time, a month or a quarter. And what you need to do there is you need to have a failable criteria of progress. So that key result should be the conviction that we're allowed to keep going. It's not the justification for the overspill of work into another quarter, right? The last one's the hardest. If you can do the first two, so as a recap, be carry audacious goal comes in and you can either define a zero to one measure or a metric movement, so not a metric, but a metric movement increased by 35%. You can do something really compelling here as long as it comes from the team and the bias is removed. There's a really good book called Lean Analytics that talks a lot about this. And it's the big difference between having the metric I named, which was growth versus growth rate. So instead of increasing by 10%, it's increased the rate by 10%, which means it's a compounding measure. But we're now at the 10 out of 10 level of difficulty. So if we dial it back, my suggestion of the zero to one measure or the metric movement, the big hairy audacious goal, that's a great way that anyone can just say, it doesn't conform to this and I would like one of those, please. And everything can move forward, organization-wide, but especially in product. Thanks for giving us an engagement card or a checklist for validating our OKRs. That's super useful. We talked about what the difference is in approaching a product in general from a Europe versus US standpoint, from a founder's perspective, from a product manager's perspective. What does that look like for a CPO or product leader? Yeah. So I think that the real way that we can challenge this, I feel like it's, and it's something I really care about. It's a personal piece, which is that you should have a place where you have a strong network to be vulnerable. In my case, I want this to happen. I run something called Product Land, and it's an invite-only community for VPs and CPOs where people can just have a sort of ability to be themselves, right? That's what vulnerability is. And they can say things like, I'm a CPO and I don't know what I'm doing. Now, obviously they don't say exactly those words, but they have the freedom to ask what I would call dumb questions. And just for others to, a dumb question isn't a bad thing. A dumb question is one where you want to say it and you stop for a second, you think, should I ask that? I love those. Find a space where you can ask dumb questions and you can really help people because you're just saying, I don't know and I want to be vulnerable with you. Product leaders do not have this in Europe. And I think that's the UK, that's London, that's Europe, that's every country. We don't have these safe spaces and we need to create them. And that's, I think, what really the leaders need because when you can learn from each other and you have a space, everything can be bettered. But if I'm honest, product is a pretty lonely job at the top in Europe. So you just talked about creating a safe space for product leaders to be vulnerable and also to have a network of people that can act as a support group, right? And where they can actually grow and learn together. How do leaders create that space in their own teams? Yeah. So I think we talked earlier about a sort of a bias for action in the US. They're willing to just go out there and take risks because speaking frankly, they're more keen in making you successful than comfortable. That's what it boils down to, right? And I can give an example, but 
you have to enable PMs the chance to take meaningful risks. And I say the word meaningful, meaning that you feel like they're taking a risk. If you feel like, mm, then are they really pushing the boundaries for you and your company? A good example is a PM where I am today called Amedia. Amedia is a lot of, has a lot of experience in the construction space and was about to start on a key project. And I was, I think, seven days in the business and he was two. And we sat down and I said, I think you need to be customer focused. You're about to work on a big project. Let's figure out how we get you there. Are you willing to get out there, represent the company and get customer focused? And he was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so we had a media out there on a construction site in the middle of England on his fifth day. And he has a bit of domain expertise, but he's going out to do customer focus, you know, on premise, figuring stuff out and really understanding the value. On a construction site, which yep. is not like going to a Starbucks, right? No, but I think interestingly, the, the wall, I don't know if there's a metaphor there, but there is as big, I think for a B2C company where you're working with people, I would have expected you to have tried the entire product in your first week. I would have expected you to spend one day on customer service in your first week. That's like coal-based grade work, right? Whether it's phone calls or emails or tickets. You're putting yourself out there. It's uncomfortable, but you will feel firsthand, not just the problems, but the experience we offer people. So I think there's always a way of doing it. Admittedly, a construction site's a little extreme, but kudos to him. He did it. We made sure that there was a way he could do it. Product leaders enabling PMs to take risks in these kinds of environments and constantly challenge PMs to take risks. That's a big deal. What are some of the other challenges you would expect CPOs to create the time and space for within their teams and in their leadership style? Yeah, so I think the other one attached to some of this, we talked earlier about bias to action and going fast and breaking things. When you get the understanding of the rate of execution and the rate of learning, we haven't really talked about how leaders do this, but you can break those rules, right? There can be times when you shouldn't execute anything and you should slam an entire team to zero and say, you now need to make everything about your rate of learning or the opposite. And in one case, I remember doing this with a PM a little while ago, they had to build a physical product, biotech, quite a complicated space. And we were trying to find the right way to solve this problem. And I sat down with the product manager, Ranj, and I said, Ranj, I think there's a way we can probably do this faster but I want your opinion as to whether you think it's a good idea and shall we do it? And I said, I will buy you, it was a D2C business, I will buy you every competitive product, biotech, but I want you to try them. Because I think if you can learn how all of these experiences work, we can build a better product faster than any market segmentation you do, any customers. There's some real unfair advantages we can create here. And Ranj, to a testament, had all these different like kits and things that it was all to do with mental health and wellness for context. And she was doing like essentially vlogging. She was vlogging in a private channel in Slack. She was like, I'm opening this box. This is amazing. So I like, I don't like. And she was crunching through, I think, five simultaneous products. Un because... Unboxing therapy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I won't go into all the details. She did an incredible job. And she took us on a journey. And every, I think it was two weeks. She did a report, she did a presentation, she tried to tell us the story of it, and I would coach her through that as the product leader. 
we figured out what the right product to build was probably a year faster than anyone else. And we leveraged all the value of our competitors to enter the market with something that could easily win. That's not conventional product management. That's going, I think we have an opportunity here to do a rate of learning increase, stop the execution. Let's see how clever we can be. And that's where product leaders need to be able to create that opportunity to challenge PMs to move even faster or learn even faster, depending on what they think is the right strategy. It's important that when we think about how product leaders create these challenges, that room to take risks, that ability to move faster, uh, I think there's also a thing around feedback loops. And this is a skill that I think product managers need to develop in Europe. And I think product leaders as well, to be honest with you, which is about removing cognitive load. And most of us sit in lots of meetings that take all of that cognitive load, or we're trying to solve really hard problems all the time. And there's actually a communication thing we can work on here. And there's a fantastic book called Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. It's a UX book's about 10 years old. He's done about three versions of it. Doesn't matter which one you get. And he talks about salsifying. And it's the concept by which we as humans aren't very good at making decisions. And so what we do is we average. The reason you have to make a decision, or if you like, a decision becomes more and more difficult, the less you understand it. So it's that thing where we talk about customer language, but if you can talk in a way that people can hear, they will understand really quickly. If they have to listen, 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 and then think about it and then hear what you said, you have a huge problem. And this is, I've seen this classically with PMs. They want to pitch their idea or their roadmap or, and they're not just trying to think, what does that person need to understand? And how can that person just understand it like this? Because if you can apply that kind of thinking, two things are powerful. One, in the company, everyone immediately either agrees or disagrees with you, but you gain back that scarce resource of time. The second thing is that actually, if you talk to your customers and you're doing good customer in an understandable way, that will lead you to so many richer insights, so much faster than you adding all your bias and trying to pitch things and use your company language. If you just think, I'm about to have a conversation with someone, how understandable can I make this? PMs can 10x. And uh, it's really important that you do that because we live in a world where you have to start thinking about inclusive design and universal design. So I'll explain what that means. But if you get this understandable nature, you should apply the fact that we live in a world where everyone should have the right to use the things we create, right? It needs to be inclusive. So on that external customer focused lens, we should be having that conversation inclusively. It should be understandable for anyone. That's really important. Universal design means that we always think about all the different environments it could be used in. It's not just on a phone. It's not just on the web. It might even be physical. It could be used in a space. And doing universal design, again, if you understand context, the context of things, you'll do a better job. And so these are pretty hard concepts. They do normally need people to help them. But the base principle is the same. Don't make me think. Before we wrap up, I want to take us to this next segment of the show, which is my favorite segment, which is called the treasure chest. I'm going to ask you a number of questions around things that you've found to be useful and really impactful for you throughout your career. The first one being, what are some of the most helpful resources you've used to be impactful as a product person? Yeah, it's a really good question. And so when I think about the resources that I've used to deliver impact, 
Or if I think about the things that have helped me be impactful, we've already talked about one, right? Which is that building of a strong network. And I've done that probably for 10 years. Even when I was an engineer, I went to all the events and I tried to form bonds with people. It's really important. It gives you diversity of thought. The others, I think, have taken me a long time to develop. But they're resources I think about developing today. So I don't think we're done. Back to my whole linear world of thinking. One is continuous learning. And I think the beginning of that is, is really simple. It's very clear what a product manager needs to learn. It becomes much, much harder as you get further and further through your product career. But I'm always trying to think about how I challenge my ability to continuously learn. I will slightly embarrass myself by saying every day I spend about an hour or two on YouTube at 2x speed learning on topics. Unfortunately, I can't find the product ones. So more recently, they're like economics and mineral density and stuff like this. But I'm just trying to continue to build the muscle. I appreciate most people don't want to listen to 2x speed for two hours to learn. It's my vibe. The other ones are self-reflection. So it's the ability to find that radical candor for oneself. Honestly, people ask me a lot about this. If you actually just have a five minute, 15 minute slot at the end of your day to write some things down, great. That's a great way of doing it. I personally take voracious notes in every meeting, in every engagement. My notion is like heaving under the weight of my self-reflection. But that's my take. You don't have to do the extreme version. I've just refined it. And that's where I've got to because I want to self-reflect real time. I think the last two are the seeking of feedback, which comes back to communities and trust. But I think going to your boss and feeling like you can seek feedback from them anytime has always been a big part of for me. And that last thing that we've talked about a lot through this thematic, which is that ability to take calculated risks. I have purposely through my career tried to feel uncomfortable pretty much every day. And I think that's helped me a lot. The other way that I sometimes say to, to people is never say no. In product, never say no. Obviously, not on the ridiculous request that's going to blow your roadmap up, but be willing to listen to other people, even if you don't have all the information, as long as you trust them and just go with it. And I think that's also a big deal, both in and out of work. It helps to develop yourself. Thank you. That's super helpful. Next question. What would you say or have been the key accelerators in your career? So... Back to that calculated risks, definitely always saying yes to hard problems is a key penchant. And I've definitely actively sought them out. I've had most job titles and people think it's a bit nuts because I kept saying yes. But I think the other thing is mentors. I, I would like to think of this in two axes, that kind of ability for you to serendipitously find them and your ability to convince people to mentor you. I've had... Some very privileged mentors, Marty Kagan, Alexander Osterwald, who I learned from directly, Rob Fitz, who wrote the mum test. So I've, but that's not magic. Some of it was lucky. But if you think that someone can really be impactful, you should seek it out. And that can be really defining because most people never, ever strive for mentors. They assume they work somewhere, their boss is nice, and they teach them some stuff. Very different mentality around how you think of mentorship. On to my favorite question of this show. Now, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you can have the following things. One, a book. Which book would you take? And two, an endless supply of a specific dish for all meals going forward. What would that dish be? Let's start with a book. Sure. The book I would take or have if it was my only book, so to speak, on my desert island would be The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumont. So it was for context, it's a sort of 
adventure book with a lot of betrayal in it. It was written in 1844. It's a French book. I wish I could read it in the original traditional French language, but I can't. But it is beautifully written and I find it one of the most inspiring things I ever read because it's a different world framed perfectly and poetically with a vocabulary that challenges me. So it's a story I have conviction in and I want to read and I might not want to be the protagonist, but it's compelling that someone who has the hardest things in the world done to them can somehow end up in an incredibly elitist position, not wanting it, but having a singular purpose to do with it. The fact that he got there doesn't matter. And it's an incredible book. If you haven't read it, admittedly, it's about that thick. It's wonderful. I can confirm it's a great book. Thanks for sharing. What about the dish? Food for me is a sort of a, it's been a journey. I used to be really bad at cooking. Then I went through a phase of, in, in my 20s, going to all the Michelin star restaurants to have all the best food ever. But then I got into the science of food. And now, annoyingly, I watched this YouTube science, food scientist bodybuilder, if you can call such a thing a thing. And he essentially <laughs> says, the way that you should think about food in your meals is imagine it's the only meal you're ever going to eat. How balanced is it? So from my point of view, you have to remove all the complexity of the thing. So mine would literally be brown rice, chicken, broccoli, soy sauce, and avocado forever. That's it. <laughs> Not, if nothing else. And it's perfect. And that would make my day. It's Every day. Amazing. Listen, thank you so much, James, for taking the time to, to do this today. I was super happy to have this conversation with you. Thanks for everything you're doing with Product Land, your role in the community. Good luck with everything you're doing at Converge and in your side gigs. Amazing. Thanks for the time, Axel. My pleasure. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.